This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, here's Dr. Gloria. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, good morning from California. Hi, Mom, from New York City. How are you? Good. Things are uh, going well here, and uh, we're very busy. Um, We have got a great guest today, and, you know, we've got a topic that um, is very compelling for me because we're going to talk about suffering and grief and look at some of the differences. And it's important because there's a lot of suffering and deep, dark hole that goes along with grief, don't you think? Absolutely. And for me, part of my healing was how to make meaning out of all the suffering. Mm-hmm. And how, how to find out. You know, I've been talking a little bit, and I wrote on Maria Shriver's blog about the hero's journey. And I, I really believe that, um, you know, we get the call. All heroes get the call to go on their journey. And then uh, when they start the journey of loss, they go to the underworld, where, which I think is where the suffering is for our, you know, for the hero's journey. And then uh, after that, they decide to some point, they have a turning point, you and I call it, where they pick up, you know, the sword or the mantle and decide to go on with life. And it happens at different times. And then uh, the last part, they take the knowledge that they've learned and help others. So I, I think it's quite a journey. We'll be talking more about that on the shows as time goes on. Well, Heidi, why don't you introduce our guest today? Okay, I would love to because our guest today went to University of San Francisco and that's where I also graduated from. So we actually have a lot in common and know a lot of the same people. And our guest's name is Dr. Nate Heinerman. Dr. Nate Heinerman is an adjunct professor at the University of San Francisco and Golden Gate University where he teaches classes in death, dying, and bereavement. He also serves as a hospice psychotherapist and chairs the San Francisco End of Life Coalition. And he is an author of a book on suffering. Welcome to the show, Nate. Thank you for having me. Hi, Gloria. Hi, Nate. It's great to have you on. I, I hate to tell the audience, and Heidi, you don't know this. Last time I went to visit Nate at San Francisco, my car got towed and I had to go find it. Oh, no. <laughs> now, that <laughs> was a nightmare. That was suffering. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> that, that yeah, right. That was definite suffering. <laughs> so, Nate, why don't you tell us a little bit about, I know you've written on the contemporary attitudes towards death, and we talked a little bit about it before the show. What are some of our attitudes about death and dying now? Well, it's an emerging question, you know, and so much has changed in such a short amount of time. Um, not just with all the epidemiological transitions, you know, we're dying much older now, uh, from slow progressive chronic illnesses. And, you know, for the first time in recorded history, we're living sometimes, uh, years, uh, at times decades with the actual illness that we know, uh, very likely, uh, that will take our life. And that's a, a way of managing our death and managing, uh, where it will occur and how it will occur that, uh, hasn't been, uh, afforded to people in, in, in recorded history. And so, um, so many changes uh, around not just life extending technologies, but just uh, who is doing uh, the caregiving and where it's happening and where we're dying. I think all uh, uh, sort of form a constellation of, of, of changes, and, and Lynn Andesfelder has called this uh, a moment of a real cultural lag in terms of uh, death and dying. Most people don't know what to expect um, and what choices they'll be faced with. And so um, while on the one hand, uh, no one is uh, disappointed that we're living longer, uh, but on the other hand, uh, it is, uh, it's gotten extremely uh, difficult, especially for families, I think, to, um, to work with their loved ones who are making 
uh, difficult healthcare decisions and, and to try to find their way through, through these difficult paths because we haven't so much been uh, mentored uh, into uh, how to have these conversations around uh, questions of meaning, value, and relationship. All right. Well, I just wanted to say that my sister recently died. And one of the problems I am starting to see with these choices and things, uh, people are giving the choices, but the families are the ones that are having to deal with their choices. I want to stay home when I die, my sister says. So um, they take her home and the family, it's huge to have somebody there, even with hospice. You know, I don't think people realize that hospice is not 24-7. It's three three days a week for an hour or two. I mean, it is tough. It, it's a tough uh, situation. I know the family feels good about it after that they were able to meet that person's wishes, but they are absolutely exhausted. Absolutely, and you know, of course, hospice. Uh, you make a very good point. You know, as a as a care delivery system, like all our other uh, managed care um, settings, is uh, is overtaxed. It's overburdened. Um, uh, you know, so. It, I mean, the interdisciplinary uh, team um, um, uh, sort of uh, paradigm that hospice depends upon, like any palliative care service, uh, is not only uh, expensive, but it's time intensive. Um, And so this is, of course, why historically hospice has been uh, so dependent upon uh, volunteers. And, of course, treating the the client or the patient and the family as a unit of care, precisely because of the great point you make, Gloria, because the family, uh, even if it's family of choice, a lover, someone to help um, work in conjunction with uh, the, the hospice um, caregivers because usually uh, hospice um, it, it, in, in and of itself without that volunteer piece, uh, it, it's, it's just not enough, especially if uh, a client is at home. Yeah, and, you know, uh, how do your father-in-law died at home? So you know, um, you know, that system, too. One of the things that um, I want to think about our audience out there, I know there are people out there who are listening to us now who feel bad that they weren't able to keep their person at home before they died. They feel like they've let them down. Um, Heidi, have you got any comments on that? The idea that they've, that they've let them down? Uh, my, I mean... I don't have any comments on that because my father-in-law was at home until he died and he was with hospice. So I, I don't know, you know, how people, I mean, like you said, what happens when you have unfinished business and when you're in a bad place and the person is dead? I mean, how do you go back and you can't go back and make a different decision at that point? Absolutely. Have you got a thought on that, Nate? Well, we just uh, conducted a study, the California Coalition for Compassionate Care here in the state of California uh, did a statewide study in 2010 taking the palliative care pulse of Californians. And we asked uh, folks about what their wishes were about death and dying. And we had uh, almost 1,600 people as part of this survey. It was actually unprecedented in terms of numbers and the way that we had the demographics represented in our very first state. And what we found, it was actually a four-way tie for first in terms of preference, the most important thing at the end of life, and it went something like this. The first hope of those uh, surveyed was that they did not want their family members to have to toil about medical decision-making for themselves. They didn't want to burden their loved ones with difficult care decisions. Number two, they didn't want to bankrupt their family with the kind of care they would receive. Three, they wanted to die at peace spiritually. The, sort of the ecumenical definition that we offered up there was sort of this intersection of questions of meaning, value, and relationship. And the four-way tie, of course, was to, you know, to not die in pain as much as impossible. But I bring this up simply to say that the la- tied for last was dying at home. 
Wow. Uh, it was tied with it was tied with uh, having a close relationship with a physician. Now, what's remarkable to me about that, uh, if you take surveys, not just for the state of California, but nationally, they come, you know, that were conducted in the 90s and in the 80s, having a close relationship with a physician and dying at home were closer, much closer to the top. So I think we really, you don't want to make too much of just one one research study, but I think even people who are, are serving those who are dying in our hospital side of care settings, we're seeing a sea change with respect to attitudes and, and what people want uh, in terms of uh, or what's most important to them at the end of life. Wow, so maybe uh, dying at home is not as, as big an issue as I thought. Now, let's talk about suffering. You've written a book on suffering. What about, uh, I've had a loss and, and I am suffering. Why do we suffer? I mean, and what can I do about it? Yeah, certainly, as in every age, this, you know, this contemporary moment, you know, we all have the capacity to suffer. And, you know, this topic and these questions, frankly, are never, you know, easily asked or answered. And when we talk about the meaning of suffering, um, it may be interesting to point out that, you know, it wasn't until 1983 that even the American um, Medical Association uh, accepted an article that dealt with the nature of suffering. And that was by a physician named Eric Cassell. So, of course, people suffered before 1983, but I, I find it um, a, a profound insight that it would take that long to have an academic paper show up in a journal, in a medical journal, really, that uh, in a certain sense, if nothing else, should be uh, speaking to the way in which, uh, and trying to ameliorate the way in which people experience pain and suffering. And yet, I think this word and this experience suffering is difficult to define. We have talked, Gloria, you and I before, about the relationship between grief and suffering. And of course, grief is that reaction to a loss, and that includes not just the affective and the cognitive, but how we behave differently, maybe how we're impacted spiritually, the way that we examine previously held beliefs and so forth. And we also we also have it physically too. It's a physical response. And I'm glad that you said that because I was I was just about to hop over that and that's the and I think that's the most undertreated the somatic uh, mm-hmm. response to grief. I think it's the most overlooked and so uh, thank you for putting that out. So that's right. So the somatic too. And so that's if, if that's forms the cluster of a grief response, and what, what is suffering? Well, I think suffering, uh, you know, and I offer this up humbly because I think, you know, as soon as you begin to define it uh, in an abstract way, you're already talking about trying to provide a context, and quickly thereafter, people can get um, into, you know, questions around, you know, how a particular culture may, you know, allocate or interpret or even deny the importance of suffering. You know, we all know uh, uh, the, the, the folks who um, have been have been raised to to to, to not acknowledge suffering uh, as a as a point of strength to accept it to try to avoid it, uh, and we all know uh, folks in our lives uh, who have said, you know, my suffering uh, is impossible to measure right now, and I can't find language uh, to 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 authentically uh, depict it. And so, you know, here in an abstract way, we also way, have some people that um uh, stay in their suffering maybe longer than they need to. Heidi, have you got any thoughts on suffering? Well, just that I think that some people hold on to the pain longer than they need to because the pain is the only connection they still have to that person that died. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly stated, Heidi. And I would just add that, you know, it, it, here's the irony to this, I think. You know, um, we, we did a study a few years ago that asked people about their grief responses after the Virginia Tech shootings, you'll recall that. And I asked uh, a lot of my, um, my my current students at that time. And most of them, this is about a year after the shooting, and most of them said no, they weren't aware of having a grief response. But in other questions that also were asking about grief, they, it just Grief wasn't in the question around, you know, uh, affective dissonance, uh, uh, having having confused feelings, uh, having anxiety about uh, about the shootings, somatic grief, and so on. 
uh, people overwhelmingly responded that they were indeed having these kinds of reactions that we would, you know, as professionals, we would, we would see very clearly as being a grief response. Contrarily, so oftentimes we're grieving and we don't know it is the point. But contrarily, when we're suffering, uh, although it's difficult to define in the abstract, we, we kind of know it when it's happening, don't we? Right. Um, yeah. There's a way in which we all know when it is in our parts of our life, and maybe it's right now, when we've been suffering. And it's while it's difficult, uh, and I wouldn't say ineffable, but while it's difficult to describe, we know that experience of being cut off, feeling forlorn, uh, feeling as though there is no hope. And of course, um, you know, this ties into the greatness of the name of your foundation, Open to Hope, because as therapists, sometimes I think of our role sometimes as being someone to keep hope even when a client perhaps isn't able to see it or perhaps doesn't want to look at it. So, Nate, you work with clients, you work with students. I am suffering. I've had a loss. What should I do? Can you give me some tips and advice? Well, you know, this is a classic a question, and it's a fair one to ask, and it gets us into, I don't think this is a, a, a cliche, but I think it's, it's perhaps overused, but I still like it. And that is just the idea that we can't mistake the map for the actual terrain. And that's one of the things I try to address in this book. There are some folks that really depend upon a larger meta-narrative, a creation story. Perhaps it's a metaphysical, sort of metaphorical way of holding the loss. So there was perhaps a, a larger purpose that's not seen right now. Uh, perhaps I will be able to reunite with this person in a new way, in, in, a, in a different time. Uh, perhaps because of the way in which um, I see, you know, an essence or a soul. And this doesn't even, by the way, have to exclusively deal with um, immortality ideologies, but simply the point that, you know, sometimes it's, it's precisely being part of a community that people are able to survive. And in contrast, uh, I've worked with folks, and you all have too, where a community meta-narrative doesn't quite fit. So what you're saying to me, I'm out there listening to you, and I'm saying, okay, um, I, I may have a story, say I'm Jewish, I have, you know, that religious story and the symbolism, or... Um, you know, I'm Christian, I have that symbolism. And also, I could have my own symbolism and tell my own story and write it uh, within all those uh, types of symbolism um, and and find a healing story out of that. Yeah, I like that. What about you, Hyde? I think narrative therapy is really, really powerful. And rewriting our stories and reworking our stories and gaining mastery over, over our stories. And the more we tell them, the more that we can do that. Mm-hmm. And and I was telling the story at the first of the show, which I like, which is the hero's journey story, and how um, you know how we go to the underworld and we suffer, and then we uh, write that story of how we do a turnaround and how we pick it up, and then how we go on to become the hero of our own journey. I think one of the problems in our life and in our society is that we're not willing to be the hero of our own journey. We're not willing to say, "I have come through this. I have come through this loss, and I am proud of that. And now I can help." other people. And also, I can deal with other losses because I've done this. I have a history. I have a pattern. So I, I don't think we embrace that enough. Yeah. And to your good point, Gloria, too, and, and Heidi, you mentioned this a little bit before, you know, I think that given all of the different dynamics that are changing in terms of how we die and where we die and so forth, most of us uh, don't grow up in a multi-generational home in a rural environment where we actually give care from a young age to those who are sick and dying in our homes. And that was the norm for millennia. And in during those contexts, not only would children, for example, but people have a very active level of participation in caring for the dying. Dying was normalized. 
It was validated. Yeah. We were able to gather around the bedside. There was this felt sense of importance to a, a reparative uh, and a communicative relationship with the dying person. And now it's quite different. We haven't seen modeled for us how to have these conversations because people have died more or less in, in professional institutionalized care settings and where the care has been delivered uh, in a system and by professional caregivers. And so in part, I think it, there's a, it makes sense that in a way, death has become a, a medical failure and not a natural event because that's how it's portrayed to us in shows like CSI and in House. And uh. <laughs> it shows up to us quite often like that because I was walking by a hospital the other day and they had a banner that said, where miracles happen. And I thought, wow, no pressure there for the caregivers who have to walk under right. that banner to do. By the way, that's where I want to go uh, anytime I get bad news because, that, you know, that's, I'm just going to point to that sign. So I think there is an expectation that at some on some level, um, you know, death is a medical theory. It's not a natural event. It's something to be avoided at all costs. And that is a much different way of holding the reality of death than I think had ever been present before. You know, we're going to have to end on that point, but that is such an important point uh, that looking at death as a medical failure. I think there's so much of that goes on, and and that means that there's not a lot of forgiveness in it, and there's anger and all sorts of things that are held in that. Well, Nate, thank you so much for being on the show today, and uh, how can people get your book on suffering? Well, it's on Amazon, and um, it's, uh, it's it's available now, and um, yeah, on suffering, and uh, there's a longer uh, sub uh, subtitle, but uh, on suffering, we'll get you there. <laughs> and he also has some other books uh, that he's um, done that you can look at on Amazon. Well, thanks for being on the show today, Nate. Thanks, Thank you Well, Heidi, that was pretty profound, particularly at the end of it where Nate talked about death as being a medical failure, because I kind of felt that way when my sister died recently, and now I realize it's kind of an odd way to, to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So It is true, but I think it's, it's also the idea that we can control our world. And we uh, don't yes. want to admit that sometimes we don't have control. And I love what you said when you said we don't embrace our hero's journey, because I think to say that we've transformed our our lives and found joy and hope again, which you and I have, some people feel like that's that's something they should apologize for. How could you find hope again if you really loved Scott? How could you be the hero of your own journey if you were that close to him? And we have to rework that story in and of itself, in my opinion, to truly heal and to be our own hero. Absolutely. Well, thanks for listening to the show today, and God bless. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.